The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. It's like your favorite call-in radio show, without being able to call in, and without being on the radio. Building HVAC Science with Bill Spohn. Hello and welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We're here to help the professions of building science, building performance, and HVAC work better together, making customers happier in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. I'm your host, Bill Spohn. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. In fact, the topic is my own home. So my head's been wrapped up in building science, maybe like over-insulated and HVAC performance since the late 1980s. So how do I sort through all these theories and experiences and learning that I have to bring my own home design to reality? And then what's it like actually living inside these theories, the home that I've designed? So in this podcast, Nate Adams, our friend from HVAC 2.0, becomes host and interviews me. Now, the podcast was recorded in May of 2020, so you'll be looking at some things when the house is in the final stages of finishing, but we haven't moved in yet. And he'll explore in his own way the background, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and challenge me with some good questions, find out about the influences in design and construction. So I'll give you back over here to Nate so you can hear more about the Spone Home interview hosted by Nate Adams of HVAC 2.0. Welcome to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Adams. Just kidding. Just for today. Bill and I have been having discussions about his house here a couple times, and I actually went and visited him just before the whole coronavirus thing happened. It was, I don't know, a week before, two weeks before. So. We're just going to talk about what we saw, what's happened since, how the project's going. I think it's cool that Bill asked me to be here. So thanks, Bill. You're welcome, Nate. And I'm really pleased to have you interviewing me. Takes the load off. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy for you to say. I had to go figure out some questions and stuff. What is the move-in date currently? They haven't set a firm one. We plan on doing that within the next week or so because they're still catching up. As you mentioned, the coronavirus caused a delay in construction. And the original one we were looking at was July 27th. I'm hopeful that it's before September 30th. Like we didn't lose more than eight weeks. And we'll see what that is. That's what I'm hoping for. And that's 2020. (laughs) <laughs> so, and Pennsylvania was the only, yeah, 2020 would be good to think, but so Pennsylvania was the only state, I think, that closed down construction entirely. I saw some things from National Association of Home Builders that I think there were four states that were either partial or full shutdown for construction, any new residential construction and commercial in Pennsylvania. And then they started to release those restrictions and prohibitions around May 1st. Okay. So when did Pennsylvania open back up? I would say May 1st, everybody between May 1st and May 8th at different levels. And some of it's like there aren't inspectors everywhere checking on things, but our builder communicated that to us and we felt comfortable with that date. So things have picked up back again here. We're recording in mid-May right now. Cool. And are they limiting to one trade on site or anything like that? What are the restrictions at the moment? Honestly, I haven't paid total attention to that. I'm trusting the builder to enforce, but the way they been working is pretty much one trade on site, maybe two trades if they're exterior, exterior, interior, or like septic is downfield and electrical is up by the house and that kind of thing. So they're respecting the social distancing. I've seen that. 
we are in a new world since we last saw each other in person. Yeah, really, just totally um, different. It's like, yeah, this is just weird. I mean, nothing like this has happened in a hundred years, which is long enough that there's very little social memory of it. And then, plus, we didn't have international plane travel before. Wow, that's a thought I never thought of. <laughs> we can instantly jet around. I mean, it takes a while. My wife and I went to India back in 2012. That was a long flight. It was 18 hours mm-hmm. solid. But we literally went halfway around the world in 18 hours. And that's kind of a crazy thing. And that didn't exist in 1918. So this has not been an easy one to contain because there's so many people going so many different ways, so many border crossings, so many ways in and out. What a tricky thing. So yeah, I'm glad I'm not in charge. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see your name on the list, by the way. <laughs> nope, definitely not in charge on this. I'm very thankful for that. But uh, I don't want to dig into that, really. But I'm just curious, how did it affect the construction side of things? Ohio didn't really shut anything down. There's a little bank that was a chase, and they sold it to a smaller local bank. And they've been renovating it. And they've been going full force through the whole lockdown, which has been interesting. And it's up and running now. So they got the thing up and running, I think, pretty much on schedule, which I thought was interesting. Nice. So taking a step back, you call it the personalized mm-hmm. performance home. You just had your first blower door test. What was it, a week and a half ago now? Yep, almost two weeks. Now. So what was the target and what happened? The target was one ACH 50, which would have been about 600 CFM at 50 pascals. We ended up much closer to 1,200. It was not a pass by the standards that we were going for. We did do some minor air sealing with tapes just to see how different perspective leakage areas could reduce the flow. We were using a couple thermal imagers. I actually, construction consultant, Rhett Major, the energy doctor, friend of mine, he used his Fluke thermal imager. And I actually have on loan from Testo, like a super resolution one that's four times better. Very sharp thermal images. So we were able to pinpoint a lot of the areas, even though there was a very mild temperature difference. It was like 60 degrees inside the house and 54 degrees outside. So we didn't have sort of a massive delta T, but we were still picking up thermal signatures. A 60 degree delta and you were getting something still? Yeah, yeah, with these cameras, yeah. (laughs) How expensive were those cameras, by the Uh, way? I I think it's, I want to say it's around 17,000, something like that. Good Lord. Uh, Yeah. Um, I don't know that all of our cars together are worth that. (laughs) 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 Right now. But it's cool, the stuff that's on the high end. There's some just incredible stuff. So six degrees was enough delta. I mean, my general rule of thumb in my mind is I want 15 Yep. I'm using an inexpensive FLIR one for the most part. Right. So in general, for our practice, it's more of a sales tool than it is a diagnostic tool oftentimes. And as a diagnostic tool, if you got a little bit of delta, that's enough. But I don't know, that's wild. Six degrees. Holy cow. Yeah. So where were the big leaks? There's the architecture of the house. There's a vented attic space that's above the second floor area. And we believe it was coming in through that deck area because it was in, I mean, we have LED quote-unquote can lights. So there's like minor penetrations, but somehow things are getting behind the sheathing and the decking area in the attic. The attic is accessible. So that's going to be the point of repair that they're going to go after, the builder's going to go after. And by the way, the builder was not happy with the result. They felt that they had, to the best ability, committed to a 1 ACH 50 or 600 CFM and missed the target. They weren't happy and they were very curious. We spent like 90 minutes going over the report all the images discussing the areas. So they want to take another hack at it. 
Oh, it's great that they want that. It sounds like you and Rhett didn't beat the crap out of them. No, like we're just more, them. here's what we saw, here's what we think, and let's go about this together and try to make it better. So I think they're looking at us like this is a project they'd like to do well on and be able to point back and say, hey, we can do at this kind of level. And when they're learning, it's in the learning process. It's tough. Learning air sealing is, in theory, it's very simple. That's where inside meets outside, make sure it's sealed. Right. But the reality, there's all these little weird pieces. And I've never seen a manufactured home like yours. Like I've seen a handful of them, but I've never seen one where they were aiming for high performance. It's a intricate roof design. I remember the, the supervisor in the factory saying to me, Mr. Spone, do you realize you have nine roof lines? And then he like stared at me, nine roof lines. Like you're, you're making this tough on me. Now they accepted the work, but it was a bit of a challenge for them to make all these different planes come together. And to get to where they got to, I think it's very amazing, considering that it's a modular construction, as you mentioned. So there are literally four boxes, about 14 feet wide by 64 feet long, by around 11 feet tall, four modules that came together on site, all built on different lines. I mean, the same factory, but different lines. And the deviation, I think you saw it because it hadn't sealed the exterior yet. How big was the deviation between from over 64 feet between matching the walls? It's about a half an inch, if memory serves. Yeah. We don't believe any of the leakage is coming from the module-to-module interface. We believe it's coming from the roof deck area. That's really interesting. Because when you first told me about it, I'm like, oh, look, they screwed up those. But it Mm -hmm. also seemed like, how are you going to screw that up? Because Rhett suggested it was backing rod with... uh, What kind of sealant was he going to use on top of the backing rod? I think it was Prosoco. That um, would make sense. One of their products, yeah. Yeah. In our practice, we do very little wall work because mm-hmm. uh, even when people look at us like a 30 to 50 or maybe sixty thousand dollar budget like that's a lot of money like not really when you get into it if you're trying to do a lot of shell work and an hvac system you burn 50 grand before you touch walls so i've always been curious to try and use prosoco but haven't had a project where that fit maybe someday or maybe not by the yeah. way i can see your house sometimes just seeing it is enough and yeah. i'll just watch hammer in hand out west they're always doing crazy stuff with prosoco interesting anyway they do a lot of passive house construction in Seattle area, if memory serves. So they're an interesting page to go watch. Anyway, so Prosoco was sealing that stuff in the attic space. Was it like top plates at all that were leaking? Was it mainly the lights? Like what did the leaks look like? Actually, I haven't been up there, so I can't really comment on that aspect. Well, in the infrared, could you see hmm. what the issues were? Yeah, it was the can lights. There's actually a room, which is like a giant closet above the master bedroom. It's not Mm -hmm. a room room. There's actually no piped in heating and cooling, but there is the ERV. There is an exhaust or a return for the ERV in that space. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to provide some kind of airflow through a door undercut into that space. That room had some of the most leakage in the ceiling area and in the, along the walls, like along, oh. along the knee wall area. So they're going to, because it's all sealed up, they're going to actually just caulk between the floor and the wall area to try to cut down on that. That's right. Yeah, it's all drywalled in there for the, now, for the moment. Isn't yeah. It? There was carpet covering in the, that little room is accessed from one of the upstairs bedrooms. There's a carpet covering. I don't know if it was visqueen or whatever the material was, just plastic over the carpet that was installed in the factory. And when we closed the door to that space, the air coming out made that plastic billow. So it was very indicative, yeah, of the um, 
<laughs> You're right. It was indicative that that's a major source during the blow door test. So yeah. Well, that's good. That carpet should be easy to pop up, and you could pop up the OSB as well on the floor there, right? You know, there's no carpet in that room. Oh, that's right. You um, hadn't this, even done it. This yet. was yeah. just, it was coming under the door and sneaking under the carpet covering oh, okay. into the bedroom and making the bedroom billow. Do you remember what the zonal reading was on that? We didn't do zonal. There aren't enough doors up, and there's just still too much oh, okay. material in the way. So I'm going to make note of that, that hopefully as we move along here, we can do a zonal test. Yeah. To those who are listening and aren't familiar with zonal test, zonal pressure diagnostics, that's the full term for it. It's a really fancy phrase for when you have the blower door running, you throw the manometer hose underneath the door or into whatever cavity you want to measure, and then you close the door or you check whatever the pressure is in that cavity. And if you are depressurizing to the standard 50 pascals, if the manometer reads zero, it's entirely inside the house because you're creating a 50 pascal difference. And if it reads 50, it's entirely outside the house. And on a house like Bill's, which is supposed to be really tight, none of those readings should be very high. Like I doubt that any should be above one or two, which should be 2% or 4% connected outdoors. If you double the zonal number, it's how connected it is to outside. So that's something that we do in the HVAC 2.0 Comfort Consult. We check every room in a house that has a door on it because it only takes 10 or 15 minutes once the blower door is up and you get an idea of where the big leaks are. And that's why if he's telling me that that room is really problematic, I really want to understand how problematic is it. Let's put a number on it. Like, mm -hmm. is it four pascals? Is it 10 pascals? Like with carpet flapping, I'd probably, if it isn't five, I'll eat my hat. And that's a lot for any one space in your house. Five pascals, so 10% connected outdoors. So hopefully that's the main source and you can get to it. So we'll see where they go. But getting from a 1200 CFM 50 blower door down to a 600, if you have an idea of where to look, that sounds possible. But 600 points, that, that ain't lot. easy. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah that's, so for reference, every ballpark 1500 CFM 50 is about a square foot. So it's, I forget all of the exact numbers, but basically every 10 CFM 50 is a square inch and there's 144 square inches in a square foot. So 1440, where I just round up to 1500 because none of this is exact. It's just trying mm -hmm. to get an idea of what's going on. So at 1200, you've got a total hole probably the size of a, a legal sheet of paper something like that. So not an eight and a half by 11, but US legal. And the goal is to get it to half. I'm really curious to hear what happens next on that. And I'm fascinated that it wasn't the joints because I looked at those joints. I'm like, oh boy, that seems fairly easy to goof up, but I was wrong. So <laughs> won't be the first time, won't be the last. So that space, it's kind of a cool room, the one that ended up leaking. The idea is it's a, basically an oversized closet. So you're hoping that the grandkids basically end up keeping their toys in there, right? Yeah, something like that, or just quote unquote condition storage that's accessible, isn't in the basement. There is no attic. So that kind of thing. It's great. Having a six year old myself, I would love to have a place where I could just have her go with all of her toys yeah. instead of having them being scattered everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of the meme of the shark. It looks like he's in pain with his head sticking out. So the yeah. shark just stepped on a Lego. Pretty much all of us parents have done that or something similar. So anyway, I thought that room was cool. Like as a kid, because it's got the nice sloped ceilings and it feels smaller in scale, I would have really liked 
that was looking back on it now, my parents' house, we had a sunroom that stuck off the side and there was a crawl space under it. And my brother and I loved that crawl space because it was kid sized. And that was a big house. It was a 5,000 square foot house. So the house is definitely not kid sized. So it was nice to have a little space. Curious to hear what your grandkids think as you get there. Sure. So moving on, on the performance side, let's talk about the HVAC side. Mm-hmm. So HVAC is not there yet or is the unit delivered? Yeah, the units are delivered. It's Detson air source heat pump. The equipment was delivered a few weeks ago. So it's sitting in the laundry room waiting to be installed. Actually, yesterday I was just working with Red and we sent over some best practices for our return design to make sure the contractor was aware of what we'd like to see. So this is interesting because I'm not hands-on like you're hands-on with your house and a lot of other people are. I'm sitting back, pointing my fingers, giving recommendations, but I feel like being paid attention to and supporting it also with Rhett's voice, who's the voice of like real hands-on experience. And mine is sort of the, I've seen things, (laughs) I've heard things. And then I bounce it off of Rhett for reality. And then we go talk to the builder about it. We come sort of a reinforced opinion and they're very receptive to it. They're like, yeah, we're learning this project. You're changing the way we do things. So that's good. That's a key thing that we should focus in on. So that's two different contractors you've heard, hey, we're learning. Yeah. That's that's the builder and the HVAC contractor. What would be the ideal outcome of this? Like, what would it look like? What would they learn that you'd be tickled pink with? The HVAC contractor, they have a licensed contractor that works for them. So the builder is the HVAC contractor, if you will. And because the duct design and layout is done pre-ducted in the factory, because it is a modular construction and they've had... 12, 13 years experience doing this, not all with the same kind of system, but they've grown to understand how to work with the factory and then execute it in the field so that they have happy customers. And even the builder himself, the co-owner, the co-founder, he built his own house using their system and he lives in it now. We've had a chance to pick apart and meet at his place and look at different aspects to understand how they go about their work and actually trying to take it like a level above what he's done in terms of the billing performance quality, put it that way. Nice. So what are some of the specific details that you noticed there that may or may not be the same on yours? There was one area of the house where we did a blower door test at his house. And when we saw an area that was a wall that had a lot of leakage through it and we showed it to him thermally and he's like, yeah, that was a problem. So it's sort of like an understood thing that I, I don't know what got in their way of making it right. There was some thermal bridging going on. There was some air leakage going on. That's the kind of thing we didn't want to see in ours. And also there was some leakage around door frames, actually. One of his doors had some substantial leaks around it. We saw no leakage around any of the door frames in our house. Actually, we do have passive rated sliding patio door that got a little racked in the transport process. Mm. And that was leaking when we were testing. But the manufacturer actually is located only 60 miles away. They're coming out this week to fix everything, to go over all the windows and make sure everything's in place. So there was some leakage from that door, which we didn't tape off, didn't seal. We knew it was happening. So that's probably the tertiary opportunity is with that door. Okay. But he, he had door leakage, like his inset doors were leaking, installed doors were leaking. None of our doors were leaking. Cool. So very careful installation practices then. So back to the HVAC, through the walls, you've got the medium velocity ducts. What is it? Two inch inside diameter? Two and a half? I think they're two and a half. Yeah. Okay. That, I think that makes sense because I think that's a hair bigger Utico systems, like your more standard 
high velocity are two inch, I believe. Yeah. So those are going through the walls. And that was interesting to see going up and going back. But what kind of captures my mind, and I'm a geek, so sorry, but I'm wondering what is that going to look like in the basements? What are the trunks made of? What size are the trunks? How are the takeoffs going to go for doing that? I'm curious what happens in the basement once the actual HVAC gets installed. Yeah, so it's actually an electric furnace that will have AC coil placed in the return. That's the preferred construction because they don't want us ever see the electric heater over the coil, basically. I believe that's the concept there. So the A-coil gets placed in the return, then it goes through the blower, and then through the electric heating elements. And electric heating elements are attended there for backup heat to cover when it possibility gets really cold. Although we believe we're sized for design days to have the system handle it, but we have that in there sort of as a reserve. Above the electric coils, they recommend a distribution box because it's a relatively high pressure system. It operates at about eight tenths of an inch to one inch of water column. We have four zones going on. So I believe, and actually I meant to this week, I want to review through the installation manual to be able to go on site with them and make sure they're following instructions. And I learn from the process as well as they do, but we have four zones. So I believe there's like a distribution box on top. And then immediately into that, you connect the four zones. I want to say they're eight inch diameter takeoffs that then go into eight inch trunk lines. And then the eight inch trunk line has individual saddles that have sealant on them that are placed to hook up the quote unquote hoses, if you will, the distribution of your hoses. Yeah, that's what the small ducks look like. They look like a a large shop vac hose that's insulated. Right. Not exactly like that, but close enough that it's a good mental picture. So is it the eight inch trunk lines, are those hard duct or are they flex or they're hard? Special. Okay. Yeah, they're hard because you have to put the saddles on them. That would make uh, for sense. For the takeoffs for the hoses, yeah. That, that's what I was wondering. And that, we're both northerners, so we prefer hard yeah. ducts. You go down south and everything's flex and duckboard, and we look down our noses at them. Yeah. No, just kidding, everyone. Cringe or shiver more <laughs> so for me. But it can be done well. It's a Neil Comparato and John Semelhack just did a great little video on HVAC School, their mm-hmm. YouTube channel, of testing out a project. And Neil had run... Oh, my memory's failing me. It was somewhere between 70 and a 90 foot long run of six. It's close to 100. Yeah. Yeah. And it was still outputting 95 CFM. So it's with good install practices. It's amazing what can happen with flex. Mm. It's, I think my main issue with flex is usually that it's done so poorly that it can screw up the experience for the client on the other side. Sure. This system from Detson actually is their smart duct system that mm-hmm. they've branded it. So it's the distribution hoses, if you will, as well as the fittings that go through the wall. So these are like nozzle vents, if you will. And they actually come out with these new adjustable flap dampers that can be placed on the nozzle so you can direct and control the airflow. Even though it is zoned, you can take it to another step and control it by the nozzle. Yeah, And the attended max flow from each nozzle is around 33 CFM. Oh, that's interesting. Some rooms needed a couple of nozzles, a couple, three nozzles. Some only needed one based upon the expected loads that were calculated with the manual J. Who did the load calc, by the way? Michael Hausch. Okay. I thought that's what I didn't know if you had done another one as well. Did he do the duct design as well? Or how did the duct design get done? The duct design, we fell back to the experience of the builder who's familiar with the factory and also their experience with the Detson smart duct system. Detson actually 
has a design calculator. It's a spreadsheet that they provide for builders and contractors to go through and put in your loads and it will come up with a design, a recommended design in it. So it's very cool. And all these things cross-checked each other. And we also did a passive house block model, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. of the house using the passive house planning package, which includes the windows, the wall assemblies, the air ceiling, this orientation and it that agreed with Michael's calculation with manual J. I mean, to within a few percent. Oh, that's perfect. I mean, that's the ideal too. Ted Kidd, my partner, and I very much like finding ways to back check calculations. Yeah. And I can't think of it. It's not a reference point, but reconciliation point. The more reconciliation points you can have, the more confident you get to be, especially when you're being aggressive. So speaking of being aggressive, how many square feet is the house and what is your load count? The number of square feet for the first and second floor is around 2,900. And the basement is around 1,600. And the basement will be conditioned. So I guess overall, it's about 45. Yeah, 4,500. It was the second question, second part. What is the load on the house? Oh, we expect to see around two tons of cooling and 1.8 tons of heating. Really? Your cooling load came out bigger than heating? Let me double check that. (laughs) No, no, it's possible because, I mean, with your house being basically unshaded at the top of the hill, it's going to get a lot of solar load. Yeah. I haven't done a load calc crazy high performance home, but the heating and cooling usually do get closer to each other. A leaky house, your heating might be triple your cooling load. So for anybody who doesn't know who's listening, so Bill lives in Pittsburgh. I live in Cleveland. So we're very similar in climate. He's a little bit milder than we are, but not a lot milder. So do you know what your design temp is there, Bill? Let me correct that. I need to correct that. And I actually pulled up, I should have done this before I pulled up the manual, Jay. The summer... Outdoor is 84. The winter outdoor is nine. Okay. So I guess those are the major points. And then the heating was 24,555 was the heating BTUs. And the cooling is 21,118. Okay. So yeah, still that's way closer than what we normally see. Two to one is more common for our retrofit work. So the, yeah. the heating is about double cooling. Well, it's also interesting because your design temps are both a bit milder. So you're 9 and 84 and we are 5 and 88 here. Oh, wow. I'm surprised that the summer is lower. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised at that too. And then the other thing, the other ace in the hole we have is that we're using a conditioning ERV, yeah. which has the capability of conditioning the fresh air stream for both temperature and humidity or humidity reduction and temperature addition or reduction with a third of a ton heat pump. Yeah. So to be clear, the CERV, the conditioning energy recovery mm-hmm. ventilator. So we've discussed this in the past where we've become not huge fans of ERVs because it ends up adding enough latent load. If you're putting say a hundred CFM of outdoor air into a house and it's high dew point, we've watched a couple of our project houses really struggle and actually utterly fail to maintain humidity levels because an ERV, it doesn't actually reduce humidity. It reduces the level of humidity that's coming in. So I I view it like Congress people complaining about a funding cut when the funding cut is instead of a 5% increase, it's a 2% increase, but it's still an increase. So that's been something that we've struggled with on the ERVs. So I'm interested to see this unit because this unit actually does dehumidification, correct? Yes. It's got a rating to it. It's not a dehumidifier by any means, but it does have a dehumidification capability. And I'm actually going to bring that up on the 
screen here. So dehumidification in recirculation mode, 9.6 liters per day and 14.9 in ventilation mode. And that's, that's, not, that's not half bad. Yeah. Because I want a, a typical basement dehumidifier is, well, there's 30s and 50s, but I always recommend a 70. But yeah, that I'm curious to see how that ends up working because that might be enough. It might not be enough. I'm not familiar enough with the calculations and seeing the numbers to know. But that's the fact that it's going to at least reduce instead of adding to yeah. the latent load of the house. That's going to be a good thing. That's going to be fascinating. Speaking of which, I don't think I've asked you this. How are you planning to monitor the house? What sorts of monitors are you going to use? The serve itself, the CERV, has sensors in it. So it had temperature and humidity and CO2 and VOCs. So we can set a profile for it to run based upon trip points in those sensors so that the indoor air is kept, quote unquote, healthy. I'll probably have every single detector we sell set up for anecdotal comparison. It's not a lab, but it will be my space and just monitoring that and sharing that data and learning more as I go along as to how the indoor quality products we have, like the Air Thinks, the Air Things, the CPSIQ, the Yuhu, how all these things can perform. And even some other monitors too, ones that we don't sell, just to get a, a broader perspective on things. That's going to be really interesting. I do like that the CERV actually does active air quality control. Yeah. Because until now, that really hasn't been possible. I had basically given up on it. Like I said, you were down in Florida at Brian Orr's events where I got to present on badass HVAC. And basically that why badass came to be and it's one system that basically manages air quality but it's dumb like it doesn't actually know what's going on it's just you're doing best practice air quality measures all the time but if there's a peak or something like that it doesn't know it just keeps it's like mongo just gonna keep going here so i'm curious to see what happens with active control and then there is another piece of active control that i'm really curious to see how it works out so did you meet the zoa haven guys down at ahr yeah, and actually I installed one in my, my air handler here at the house we live in now, and I plan on getting another one for that house. So we're a beta tester. But yeah, that I didn't mention that that'll also be there. So that'll be another point of reference to the bulk air quality of the house, which is interesting because it does go in the air handler. Yeah, it's, a, it's the only one that does that. So I'll be asking for all your passwords. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see what Bill's house is doing. I'm so used to monitoring a bunch of other client houses. So uh, it'll be interesting to see one with a system that I've never seen before. Anyway, I'm fascinated to see how that works, how well it can control the air quality, what it takes to make it lose the war. You might purposely have a party in wintertime once we're over the social distancing measures, basically just to purposely screw up the air quality in the house and see what happens. So that's, I kind of enjoy watching those events at client houses. One of our clients, they have a practice for a 10 piece band once a week, maybe twice a week, adding an extra 10 people. Well, I guess an, an extra eight people to a house can be enough to throw things off. So it's interesting watching what happens. And I'm very curious, like one of the other concepts in the CERV, the CERV, is that it recirculates the stores of fresh air in the house. That's like a quote from their literature. And if you break that apart, that's really interesting to me. It's You could be occupying one space and this other space has really no IAQ load in it. So why not just kick it in and blend it all down? Because you do have fresh yes. air. So the I, I'm very curious about the overall energy needs because this isn't your average ERV in terms of just bringing in fresh air on a schedule based upon projected demands. This will be an actual 
measurements real time with what's going on in the space. That's going to be really interesting, Bill. Have you decided on an energy monitor yet? No, I haven't. And I keep on trying to go back through all your posts. And can you slow down, please, to decide which one I want to pick? So I was just thinking when we get close to that point, I'm just going to ask you just right up front to say, what's the best one? So let me know. We also, if it hasn't been noted, if people don't realize up to now, we do have enough solar on site that we believe will be net zero, in fact, be a net producer on an annual basis based upon the energy consumption that we plan versus the energy output we think we'll be generating from our production. Yeah, well, let's talk about the solar for a minute. So sure. what size is the array? Where is it? What other details are there? It's 32 panels. I think they're 375 watts each. And I believe it works out to like 14,000 or 14 kilowatts AC on an annual basis, something like that. Hopefully I got my metrics right there. Yeah, 12,000, I'm guessing 375 times 32, was that? Yeah. Um, so I've got 12,000, 12 kW and yeah, that's probably about 14,000 kilowatt yeah. hours right. a year because it's usually, yeah, what, whatever the DC rating is, your AC production is 10, 20, 30% higher depending mm-hmm. on where you are. Like Arizona, a 12 kW system might put out 17 or 18,000 kilowatt hours. And it's hard to project the load in the house because we don't live in an all-electric house now. This is will be an all-electric house, but we will have a very different envelope. Like the envelope we're in right now is around four and a half or five ACH 50, but we do have gas heating and gas water heating. So convert in the other house, we'll have a much tighter envelope and we'll have all-electric heating and water heating, everything will be electric. That's going to be really fun to watch. Speaking of which, yeah. what are you doing for domestic hot water? What did you choose? We have a, a Rheem, I believe it's a prestige model, and they call it hybrid heat pump mm-hmm. coil-based hot water system. So that's our water, water that, heating. That should work good. We've had good luck with those thus far. They're crazy quiet, and you've got a good application because you have that great big basement. Yes. If you put them in a small room, you can drop the temperature of that room 10 or 20 degrees, which is unpleasant. Wow. It depends on your water usage as well, obviously. So for the part, it's going to be you and Marilyn, so mm-hmm. it shouldn't be too big of a deal. But in our old house, we had, well, it was a similar size basement. So the basement there was 1,400 square feet, and it would drop the temperature of the basement one or two degrees, Wow, which isn't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. So curious to see what happens with that. So put a monitor in your basement too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You'll get to see the water heater run it sometimes. Okay. So yeah, Ream, that's a really standard one. I was curious if you might go sand in or something like that, carbon dioxide one. I have one of those on my house. It's been fun to watch how that thing works. It's a bit of an animal, that's for sure. But they're considerably more expensive than a Ream. Yeah. Or very similar annual energy use. Although the, the curse of the Ream is it's the energy use of the units but it's also going to be pulling some energy use from inside the house. Sure. I think people probably worry too much about that, but it's not true apples to apples is my point. It's a bit of a vampire, yes. Yeah, which that may be interesting to watch on design days because that's Mm -hmm. where it will probably end up mattering. But we'll find out because I I think the compressor is basically the same size as the... Yeah, I'm not sure. Because a third of a ton is 300 watts, something like that. Like every ton is about 1,000 watts a pull, give or take. So a third of a ton is 300 watts and the reams, if memory serves, pull about 400. So the serve might offset. We'll find out. Got it. The only other question I wanted to talk about 
was so six functions of HVAC, which we had talked about early on, and that's what the whole badass concept ended up getting built around. Yeah. So let's just walk through them briefly and talk about how your house is going to deal with those. So the first function is load matching. What's going on with that? I thought you meant load calculation. Load matching, yeah. There, it's variable speed, outdoor and indoor units. So the blower, the compressor is all variable speed. It's four zones. So it isn't going to be like full spectrum variable. If it was only one zone, I think it's 25 to 100% by Mm -hmm. like 1% increments. What we're going to have instead is 25 to 100% with two stages at each zone. So it'll be effectively eight steps in between will be the ability for the system to modulate. That'll be great. Yeah. It's more than two stage. So it's eight stage basically, but it'll be uh, staged to keep up with the demand in a zone. Cool. So that's load matching. Second item is filtration. So what yeah. do you have for filtration on the house? The serve has uh, MERV 13 filters in it. And it also has the capability to add active carbon filters. And they have a tested VOC absorption filter. I haven't studied it deeply, but it's got scientific backing of a filter material media that does absorb VOCs. Mm -hmm. So this would be, of course, on the inlet airstream and also work in uh, recirculation mode too because the unit can, like I mentioned before, recirculate the stores of fresh air. It can recirculate and cleanse the internal air inside the house. And then what will the central system have for filtration? Right now, it's going to have a four-inch media horizontally mounted. That was what I was sketching up yesterday. Okay. Probably going to put in MERV 11 at this point just for loading in it because our fresh air system is going to have a 13 in it. Yeah. So there's a balance there. So we'll see how it all works. Not to jump subjects too much, but just to touch on Corona for a minute in the research that I did, because I did a webinar with Retrotech a month ago or so. I'd never looked into viruses specifically as far as air quality, but getting to MERV 13 and up, it depends on how worried you are about it. I don't know that you need to be particularly concerned because it's just the two of you and you don't go out that much. But getting to MERV 13, you at least knock 75% of the smallest particles out of the air, where with an 11, it's more like 20 or 25%, something like that. And that's like, it's below one micron. Forgive me, I don't remember all the exact details. But anyway, it's my thinking for Corona has evolved a little bit to leaning towards a 13, but generally 11 is what we specify, 11 or higher. Got it. If that matters. So anyway, what about dehumidification? We've touched on this. Do you know much about the central system, its capabilities? I'd have to look at the design for it. Well, so I guess one thing I'd be curious on that system for, well, two things. I mean, will it have reheat capability down the road? Who knows? But like it technically has the stuff. But I'm curious, can you slow down the airspeed with that system to run the coil colder and shift the sensible heat ratio? I'm just curious. I asked the design manager from Detson that question. And he said, you won't need it. That was the short summary of the conversation because of, I believe it's because of sort of the low loads will be impressing upon the equipment. So I'm just going to trust and monitor, verify. We do have, of course, from normal cooling coil dehumidification capability. We have dehumidifying, hopefully the bulk of the air coming into the house. And then the mechanical room is so large, we could easily add uh, supplemental dehumidification if that becomes a need. Yep. Well, it's just curious to see where it is. If it matters, we usually just recommend for anybody who has a basement, have a $200, a 70 pint, a big box dehumidifier in the basement that helps carry the load in the shoulder seasons as needed. 
So food for thought for 200 bucks. It's the curse is they don't last crazy long, depending on how hard you run them. But okay, so that's DHU fresh air. Do you know what the flow on the serve is? Yeah, let me see. I have it right here. I want to say it's up to 350 CFM. Yeah, it's 100 to 300 CFM. That's the, wow. the range. Okay, that's yeah, so that's a lot. Okay, well, then you're going to be able to go way over 62 too. That's going to be interesting to see how that works. And then you might run a couple of experiments where you shut it off as well to see what happens. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be plenty because 62.2, I mean, the rough numbers are a hundredth of square footage. So that would be about 30 on 2,900 square feet. Am I doing that right? feels like I'm screwing something up there. That's a hundredth of square footage plus the number of bedrooms plus one times seven and a half. So how many bedrooms of the house? Three? Yes. So three or so four bedrooms. It's another 30. So technically 62.2 might only be 60 CFM for your house. So you should be good to go. Yep. Be interesting to see how all that works. Because obviously you won't get any air infiltration credit on that place. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's going to be pretty tight by the time we're done. Okay. So that's fresh air mixing. So you had alluded to that earlier. So stirring the house up, like good example of this is when you're sleeping in your bedroom, with your significant other, it's not hard to get CO2 levels into the 1,500 to 2,000 parts per million range. Mm -hmm. We should be staying in the six to 800 ballpark in general indoors. If you're mixing that room with the rest of the house and the rest of the house is, say, at 600, that helps quite a bit. So what do you think you're going to be setting the house up for mixing? I don't know. The thing is the serve periodically run to sip the air to decide if it needs to bring in fresh air. So I don't know. I trust the guy that developed. I've spoken with them, had him on this podcast before, Ty Newell, and he and his son, Ben, have developed this product over the course of the last decade or so. And I think he lives in a house with the first generation unit in it, and he's a constant tinkerer and improver engineer. So yeah, I enjoyed that episode of Ty. So the serve is going to be tied to the central system, correct? No, it's independent. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. So is it a whole separate set of ducts then? Yes. Yep. Oh, I didn't realize that. What yeah. a big miss on my part. How many ducks are there? They basically go into bedrooms and so forth? Yeah, bedrooms. So three on the supply office, four, and I think there's either one or two in the big living space. And then on the return side, they're in the laundry room in each bathroom and that spare closet room. That's going to be interesting to watch if it's enough airflow or not. And the other thing you might be able to try would be a running fan on for the central system as well. Uh, yeah, for stirring. Yeah. Yeah. But with the zoning, I have no idea. Yeah, it's, you got it stirring. Think of it like mixing the house like a vinaigrette. That's going to be interesting. You certainly have enough controls that you can play with on the house. Right. And there's an A number we're trying to hit. We're trying to hit a range of things under different conditions and minimize the discomfort, if you will. And yeah, yeah. Probably a lot of it's going to be mental discomfort when you get down to it. <laughs> going to worry it's, over something that really doesn't matter at all. It's all in your head, Bill. It's all right. in your head. It is. <laughs> there is something to it, but sometimes we worry a little too much. The last function, which I don't know how much it's going to matter on your house, because the tighter the house you have, the less that adding humidity is important. Mm -hmm. uh, are you planning on a humidifier at all? No, no. Just, again, there's capability at all kinds of things as we go along, but it's just, I can just say it pretty much with assurance that no one's ever built a house like this before that I know of with the modular the details, this cooling system, the heat, the ventilation system, and, and that kind of thing. So, and the occupants, <laughs> I can say that for sure. Well, Maryland's fine, but you're a little weird. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Just giving you a hard time, Bill. I'm going to be curious to see what happens once it all gets into operation. So what is the schedule for getting the HVAC going? They're doing the SketchUp design this, not SketchUp, but I mean, just coming up with the materials this week. They'll be buying materials this week. So we just got electric from the utility because we'll be net metering. We're not off-grid. There's no batteries. There's no storage on site. So the electric from the utility just came in. The pole just got put up last week and we just got, or the builder got a quote from the electrician yesterday to wire up the house. So HVAC probably won't go in until after the house is wired. That would make sense. Got to have power for it. So probably within the next month, though, sounds like. Yeah, things are, are moving pretty rapidly now. Things have picked up speed. So like the septic system will be tested on Wednesday with generators. And they brought in a thousand gallons of water to load it so they can have the county look at it and give its blessing and then bury the drip field. Great. You're getting there. At least you're not trying to live in your house like we did with this little place that we bought last year. Right. We lived here without running water for like two and a half months. It was annoying, but we got there. So the hope then is September 30th completion. What other big pieces are left? So there's some flooring has to be put in, some interior painting and patching where different parts of the modules came together and things like that. Some of the finished tiling in the bathroom, that still isn't done. There's this air sealing aspect to do another blower door test, the HVAC, the serve siding that should start later this week. Electrician... And then the, this commissioning of the solar system and then water, of course, we had a well was drilled. It was not without a little bit of grief. They didn't drill. They used the kind of the old fashioned cable tool, they call it. It's sort of like a hammerhead with cutting bits on it. And okay. they just smash the formations as they go down. The idea is it provides, it's sort of a mild fracking process where it opens things up versus boring the hole, which can smear and sort of close any pathways for the water, the groundwater to get in. They ran into a, I believe it was a pocket from an old mine underneath our property. Oh. Or around 200, between 250 and 300 feet. And all the water they had developed in the well up to that point dropped out. So they had to go another 60 feet deeper and then put in a sleeve to then catch all the groundwater coming in. So they're able to achieve that. And that's the wellhead's been all patched over and the pipes have been laid in and that's ready for connection. So it's nothing like a little drama and drilling, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we had a new well put in too. That was a fascinating process to watch. I think they used a different process, but just interesting. You're getting there. So you're down to the power's just about to be hooked up. Yeah. Water's about ready. So it's a lot of small finishing details are largely what's left. There's still, I consider some of the major events to make it habitable. Even things like this week, we've got to pick out kitchen countertops. <laughs> oh, got it. I missed, that's, I missed that's all those other details. Is, yeah. <laughs> man, that's it seems really late, but that's that can be no, we've we had some in mind, but it's now like, okay, this is the one. This is yeah. the final design. We've yeah. had a designs in mind, so. Oh, that's really fun. Cool. So you're getting there. Hopefully this fall, you'll be able to finally move. Because when did you begin this process? It's been a while. I think we bought the land in January of 18 and had was work signed up with the builder in January of 19. And then by August, we had signed the contract on the design. And then the house, the modules were built in October and set in January of 2020. So it's going on two plus years now. Yeah, well, it's certainly been a thoughtful process. And do you think you've enjoyed it overall? Do you think it's been worth it? Oh, yeah, I think so. It's really expanded my knowledge of how the work that we do at True Tech with 
building performance in HVAC, how that really all comes together on a personal basis. And also sort of the struggle between how far can you go within a consumer's budget? Because I was a consumer, we were the consumers and we had the budget. And how far do you go with certain details and aspects? You know, and everything you can't put in all of the leading cutting edge stuff because you won't find a contractor who will do it. You won't find a factory that will build it or they'll learn and make a mistake on your account. So all these kind of things come together in like a real interesting stew of ideas. I'm glad that it just keeps moving forward. And it's yeah. good to hear that you have enjoyed it because it's been fun to watch too. Good. Real world challenges. Here's what's nice to do in theory. And here's what we can actually get done. <laughs> it's a, a little bit of the old phrase, politics is the art of the possible. What's possible? How far can we push? What makes sense to push? Yeah, so I've, I've enjoyed watching the whole thing. And it's funny, like, uh, personally, it's a bit further than I might have gone, but that's why it's personalized, right? Right. We think these things are important, and we'll find out if what we thought was true. Yeah, exactly. Well, until next time, and the next episode might be post-housewarming, so we'll see how all that works out. Yeah, definitely. We'll have some data, data on you. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Well, thanks, Bill. Thank you. And uh, until next time, everybody. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast with Nate interviewing me on The Spone Home. You can find other trade-oriented podcasts like Tool Pros, HVACR School, Service Business Mastery. Also work by Zach Ciotta, HVAC Shop Talk, HVAC Reefer Guy, Mike Mayberry, Grayson Corbin Lunsford of HomeDiagnosis.tv. And of course, uh, a lot of good stuff done by our friend Jim Bergman over at MeasureQuick. I also host the Res Talk podcast, and there's sort of a parallel episode to this in Res Talk, where Laurel Elam of Res Talk interviews me. It's a little bit later date, so you can kind of like catch up there. I'll probably have Nate come back again and interview me later to cover what the updates are on this and get him to delve into my brain in terms of what's happening lately with the Spone Home. If you want to keep up with other things that I find interesting, you can follow Building HVAC Science on Facebook by typing that into the Facebook search bar. Here's a thought for today by William Morris. Have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. Thank you for listening to the Building HVAC Science podcast, which is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. And I'm a co-owner of True Tech. And any of the opinions voiced here are those of my guests or myself. Thanks again for listening. And... Tune in next time to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.